Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, it's Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. It's Tuesday, August 9th. With us to shed light on the search at Mar-a-Lago and its implications, Andrew Weissman, professor of criminal and national security law at NYU Law School, lead prosecutor in Robert Mueller's special counsel's office, and the author of Where Law Ends, Inside the Mueller Investigation. Andrew, welcome back to WNYC. It's great to have you back with us today and on short notice with this breaking news. So thank you for hopping on. My pleasure. First on terminology, I think it's important to start here. Trump calls it a raid. I see actual law enforcement and ex-law enforcement people like you saying raid is the wrong word. So what's the right language here, and does it matter? So I don't think it matters, but I do think um, it is important um, to have the right nomenclature, because when you use um, phrases like raid and break-in, it makes it sound like the government willy-nilly just did something against the law. Um, but here, um, whether you, whatever side you're on uh, of this issue, this complied with our legal system, which is that the government can't just do a search uh, on its own. They have to get a court to approve it based on probable cause. So here, a court um, clearly approved the search uh, which means there was probable cause that was set out in an affidavit um, that there would be evidence of a crime and that the evidence of that crime would be located at Mar-a-Lago. And then the FBI went about executing a search warrant. Um, so I think when you use words like raid and break in and they, you know, they broke into my safe, it makes it sound uh, much more nefarious than saying this is um, how the court system works. There has never been a search warrant issued for the residence of a former president of the United States before, as far as I know. How would it have to have been approved? Take us further into that process you were just referring to, and what more extraordinary than usual steps may have been taken here, to the best of your knowledge, or what you would uh, speculate under the circumstances? So I think there are two things that are worth noting here. Um, One is for people to understand what the options were for Merrick Garland. So he clearly must have evidence that there is something that is evidence of a crime at Mar-a-Lago. But normally, when you're looking for evidence, you can go about um, getting that information not necessarily by a search warrant. You can ask the person who has the evidence to voluntarily turn it over. You can issue a grand jury subpoena. That's a document that requires the person to collect the documents and turn them over. That's the typical way in which people proceed. But here, um, the attorney general had to have seen that a subpoena would not have worked. In other words, that if they issued a subpoena to the former president, that he couldn't be trusted to gather the information and turn it over. That is why you proceed by way of a search warrant. To give you an example, when in the special counsel investigation, we were looking for information in Paul Manafort's home, we proceeded by search warrant and not by subpoena because we could not trust that 
uh, Paul Manafort would turn over the documents as opposed to either lie to us or destroy the documents. So I think the thing that I find most um, unusual here is that for Merrick Garland to approve going uh, via a search warrant to get this information means that he really did not have confidence that a former president of the United States would actually comply with a grand jury subpoena. So I think that's that's one thing. And the other that I think is really important to keep in mind as to why the attorney general might have taken this step, which is obviously, as you noted, a big deal to search the home of a former president, is that it appears from reports that what he may have been really concerned about is that there are incredibly sensitive, highly classified documents at that location, uh, including uh, perhaps in uh, the former president's safe. And I could see the attorney general saying, this is so important to the national security of the United States that these kinds of documents that could reveal all sorts of information that are that is necessary to keep secret for the national security of the United States, they have to be um, uh, possessed by the government and cannot be in the hands of um, private citizens, including a former president. And that that interest, that overriding national security interest, could be what drove this, more so than thinking about would a criminal case come out of this at the back end. So talk more about those documents, because... When people are hearing in the news that this appears or reportedly or some sources are saying it was about classified documents, I mean, they're not the big things the general public is aware of with respect to possible Donald Trump crimes, right? They think about things connected to January 6th, mostly inciting a riot or sitting by when one was in progress or in his name or, you know, uh, the big potential fraud of the big lie or about his potential real estate fraud or how he may have interfered with the election in Georgia. There's an investigation there, but not about taking documents home instead of turning them over to the National Archives, which might seem kind of abstract and even kind of small, you know? So so tell us more. What are these documents and why would that inspire the FBI and the attorney general to take this extraordinary step in and of themselves? So this is where um, uh, you know, there's a fair amount of speculation and sort of educated speculation, because when the, the bottom line is we don't know. Um, but, you know, my um, intuition here is that we're not talking about uh, sort of run-of-the-mill presidential records. In other words, there, there are a number of documents that, that any presidential appointee is required to make to maintain, preserve, and turn over to the National Archives. Um, and that is really important. I don't know that it's so important that you would see this kind of step, you know, as the authorization of a search warrant of the former president's home. To me, if I had to guess here as to what's going on, these are documents about classified programs. So that's one of the things where, since I was the general counsel of the FBI, I am aware of the kinds of things this could be. Obviously, mm-hmm. I can't talk about them. So, But just to give you some sense of the kinds of things that can be very sensitive, um, the identity and location of sources in this country and overseas, um, relations with different countries that are cooperating, but on the guarantee that they will be kept 
quiet. Um, different types of operations that are ongoing in uh, foreign countries. All of those kinds of things, of uh, methods and means that are engaged in by um, the CIA, the National Security um, uh, Administration, and all sorts of other agencies are highly um, classified and are things that every administration, Democratic and Republican, um, has a strong interest in protecting in order to keep the country safe. Mm -hmm. And my suspicion is that would be the kind of thing that would lead the Attorney General to think action has to be taken. Um, and as I mentioned, that they have to have that information that suggested that the President and his entourage were not being candid about having turned everything over. Um, that that there, as we've heard, that there are many, many boxes that they took but now have returned. They must have had information that that was not a complete set of what they had. Um, and I think you know, that's where, um, you know, if they find that kind of information, classified information, highly sensitive information at Mar-a-Lago, um, not only could there be um, potential criminality for theft of government property, but there could just be a very simple false statement charge, um, which is that the president and his entourage said, yes, yes, we've returned everything, but lo and behold, of course, they haven't. If the search uh, does turn up, that kind of information. Um, and I think for precedent, when I've been thinking about um, anything that you could point to in the past um, that's akin to this, um, I think maybe the General uh, David Petraeus case is similar, where um, he had taken classified information and given them to a colleague he was having a personal relationship with so that she could write a book about him and then he was not candid with the FBI when he was asked about that. And he ended up um, being charged and ended up pleading to a misdemeanor. Um, and again, that's because the government has a really strong interest in making sure that sensitive programs um, are, not, um, are not revealed. Um, that's one of the reasons, for instance, when uh, Snowden leaked so much information, there was, you know, whatever you might think of, of uh, Snowden, there was you know, an enormous effect on national security interests um, in light of uh, various programs that were ongoing. On your complaint in your New York Times op-ed that they were doing the January 6th investigation from the bottom up, meaning starting with the actual physical rioters, rather than the top-down looking for the organized conspiracy, um, I, my understanding of, of your career is that you have prosecuted organized crime bosses, mob bosses, when you were in the Brooklyn U.S. Attorney's Office. And don't those traditionally take place from the bottom up? You get the little fish who tell you something about the bigger fish, who tell you something about the real big fish. And maybe in this case, some of the physical rioters who say they came because Donald Trump told them to can't come, and then if they are prosecuting leaders of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, they can talk about connections to the Trump campaign and things like that. Why not go bottom up in a case like this, based on your experience prosecuting organized crime figures? Great question. So I think the answer to that is it's not an either or. There's nothing wrong with going from the bottom up. But the reason um, that is insufficient, in my view, in terms of what um, the January 6th committee laid out is um, that makes it very 
tunnel vision to, that you have to be able to then, um, and you may not be able to, you, may, you, you have to try and get to the point where somebody at the top, like an Oath Keeper, um, uh, is having direct conversations with somebody in the White House or a White House hanger-on like a Roger Stone or a Michael Flynn. And that could take quite some time, and you may never get there. Um, and um, what the January 6th committee laid out was all sorts of other ways in which the White House was trying to undermine our democracy, such as um, eliminating people at the Department of Justice to put in flunkies who would falsely claim that there was a, uh, election fraud, uh, pressuring state officials, um, such as in Georgia or Arizona, um, pressuring the Vice President of the United States, the scheme to install uh, Sidney Powell as a special counsel to um, these um, uh, ballot boxes. All of that um, can be investigated at the same time, and a bottom-up approach wouldn't necessarily get you any of that information. Um, so to me, it was necessary to take a more holistic view and to to put it bluntly, walk and chew gum at the same time. Mm. Um, so um, you can, there's no, nothing to say that you shouldn't still go from the bottom up in terms of the people who invaded the Capitol, um, but that wasn't going to get you into the White House and the kind of information right. that we heard from Cassidy Hutchinson. Interesting. So let me ask you this, since you've got a lot of experience in the Justice Department prosecuting fraud cases, since the big lie of a stolen election is a kind of big national fraud with all the tentacles that we know now that it had, can you say at what point, if any point, it becomes a crime to perpetrate that fraud and not just a politician's big public lie? Because you can't go ever after every politician who lies or they'd all be locked up. Absolutely. So one of the things, um, you know, that the president has certainly learned is that just going on TV or tweeting and making public statements uh, that, you know, he's not guilty of anything or people are bad people who are against him. All of that is, is sort of fair game and he can't be held to account. He has scrupulously avoided, however, doing any of that under oath, or if you remember both of the impeachments, he never actually submitted anything to Congress. And that's because if you make those statements to Congress, if you make those statements to law enforcement, those if they're false, those are crimes. So he has scrupulously avoided making those kinds of broad sweeping denials in any sort of forum where he could be held criminally to account. Um, now, um, false statements about the election, um, which are geared to undermine um, the counting of the votes on January 6th can form a um, the basis for bringing obstruction of Congress uh, charges. And some of the evidence of that could be his public statements, meaning his public statements alone are not illegal. But if all of that is part of a conspiracy to undermine um, the ability of Congress to do its job um, and count uh, the votes in a democratic election, um, that is something that, that is public statements can be used to prove up. Vicki in Tudor City. You're on WNYC with Andrew Weissman. Hi, Vicki. Oh, good morning. Thank you for having such a prestigious guest. Um, you know, I was just wondering how long the process takes to, um, to enact something like this uh, FBI um, 
going to Mar-a-Lago to get documents because I was wondering if recent text messages that might have been received by the January 6th committee had any bearing on that, but that was so recent. And then the second part of my question is, given the nefarious character of Donald Trump, you know, if he was going to blackmail somebody or provide information to Vladimir Putin, for example, wouldn't it have already um, gotten into the works and taken place? Great questions. And so let me tell the rest of the listeners what text messages she's referring to for those who who aren't reading into that. Uh, there was a big news story, as I'm sure you know, Andrew, from the other day um, in the uh, libel judgment against the InfoWars uh, right wing and conspiracy theorist talk show host Alex Jones, that his lawyers accidentally, apparently, turned over many, 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 many text messages of his um, to the other side, and the January 6th committee um, then obtained those Alex Jones text messages. So that, of course, was a case having to do with um, his false statements about the Newtown Elementary School massacre from 10 years ago. Uh, But maybe he also said stuff, had contact with Trump or Trump's people about January 6th and other text messages, and that's why the committee is is looking at them to see if that's the case, I guess. Um, But could something like that so quickly, because that was just the other day, have triggered this FBI search? And then also, what about her other question regarding documents uh, that might um, be sensitive with regards to Putin? Um, great questions. So um, the answer to the first question is, it is conceivable that um, text messages and evidence uh, that is relatively recent made its way into the supporting affidavit. That's the affidavit that the FBI agent has to swear to and uh, present to the court to establish probable cause. So I certainly have been in situations um, in my career where a search warrant, you obtain it um, based on evidence that you get the same day, and it's because of the need to act quickly, you actually go to court that same day. I don't suspect that's what happened here. I I think that while it's possible that that could be some of the evidence, there was something in there that that assisted. Um, It's hard to imagine, just given the level of scrutiny, that this warrant had to have undergone at the FBI and the Department of Justice, that um, it took, it was that quick. Um, You know, one of the unfortunate aspects of being in the government is you know, things do not happen quickly. Um, there are a lot of different people who have to review things. And in, in a case like this, where it's the first time ever that there was a search of a former president, um, I can't imagine that there wasn't a, this wasn't heavily scrutinized, you know, for days, if not weeks. Um, and then with respect to your other comment, which is really interesting, and I only have speculation, is I guess I would say is that it is possible that you know, those kinds of blackmail or use of the information could have been done in the past, but you could imagine that the intelligence community was concerned about um, not just how it was used in the past, but how it could be used in the future, and being very concerned about a now private citizen having his hands on information that is highly sensitive that could be used in all sorts of ways, um, whether it's blackmail or not. Um, going forward. So I guess I would just say it's kind of an either, it's not It's not an either or, it could be that it happened in the past and there, that people in the government are concerned about it continuing in the future. 
Andrew Weissman, professor of criminal and national security law at the NYU School of Law. He was general counsel to the Robert Mueller Russia investigation in the special counsel's office at that time, one of many things he's done in a 20-year career in the Justice Department. And he's the author of Where Law Ends, Inside the Mueller Investigation. Andrew, thanks so much. We really appreciate so much time today. You're welcome. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.